We're relying on uh, Pastor Dave to complete the printing process, so you know how that goes. This is week three of our study with Dr. Lloyd. We're looking at the historical Jesus, and just to keep everybody's calendars, uh, our next, after, not two weeks from now, Dr. Ham will be back, and he's going to do Job as you requested. He's agreed to do that for us, so keep your GPS directed our way on Sunday morning, and we'll continue our studies through the winter. Let's open in prayer. Father God, we truly are blessed to come before you. We give you our praise. We are blessed to have your word and the opportunity to study it. We're blessed that you have enlightened people like Dr. Lloyd to help make your word clearer to us. But in our own hearts, Father, help us turn our knowledge into wisdom, knowledge that is active in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it's on. Nice to see you again. I, uh, one of the adventures about doing a series is usually I, I begin by just reading things, just get ideas, and then <coughs> it hits me what to do. And then I have to figure out some way to write it in a short blurb, because I really don't know exactly what I'm talking about, but I have to at least say what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the most exciting thing for me is uh, to have the process that you go through before you have it, which is to kind of put some things together I hadn't put together before I started. So I knew where I was going, and then it looks just ingenious. When I got to this point, I was like, oh my gosh, it looks like I really knew this ahead of time. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention is um, I think there are three really, really powerful words in the English language put together. Wait, it's four words. <laughs> I was contracting one of them. <laughs> it is a secret. Yes, some of the most powerful words that you can say. I don't know if it's you, but my family is full of them. They're like, uh, my mother's always telling me stuff. Don't, <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't embarrass us in front of the world. This is something we know. We're the family, but it's, it's a secret. My mother is the worst at keeping secrets, and I just made that officially online. <laughs> but everybody in the family knows that. If you want everybody to know, tell mom, and there you go. But she thinks she's giving a secret. And if you call her out on it, I'd be like, well, Mom, you just told me. And my sister told you not to tell anyone. <laughs> she goes, well, you know, your family. And I'm like, I kind of get that. On the other hand, I don't know if that's what my sister meant. Okay, so now my sister knows my mother is telling all this stuff. But it's a secret it is very powerful because as soon as someone says it, you have a responsibility, don't you? If someone's told you a secret, you now have this responsibility. And if someone says, can I tell you a secret, most of the time you want to say no, but you're drawn to say yes, because <laughs> I want to know. But on the other hand, I don't want to know because it's a responsibility once I have it. Are you trying to say it. you don't want us to tell anybody about this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. No, what I'm trying to say is I think this, it's an excellent rhetorical method to say this is a secret, or even to just imply that something's a secret. And he does that to the disciples, right? Jesus uses that technique. To, you, to them, it's in parables, but to you, I'm going to tell you the answers. I'm going to tell you the secret. But the one thing that I've seen and we've been seeing over the weeks is that if you just look at what Jesus puts in front of the listeners, you can see all the elements of the secret, and they have to put it together. That's another thing that's good about secrets. I don't know about you, but I like uh, mystery shows. 
And, but I've noticed if you watch British ones and you watch American ones, American ones, almost always the person who committed the crime they interviewed in the second scene. <laughs> almost always. It's always somebody they pass over quickly. They have an alibi, blah, 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 right? And so you completely forget they were ever in it, and then at the end they're like, oh, it was the secretary. British ones don't do that. <laughs> British ones, the ending is something like, well, he didn't know, but the daughter of his missing wife who lived with her great aunt, whom she didn't know was her aunt, you know, by the time you're at the end, you're like, what? <laughs> so she had an illegitimate son who grew up, got a job here, and you're like, oh my gosh. That's too complicated. But I believe that the secret Jesus did was more like the first one, more like I just kind of sat it right there in front of you, and all you have to do is put it together. It's not overly complex. And in fact, I was amazed how uncomplex it is, and yet it's right in front of me. And yet, I don't think I was seeing it until I went through this process. Okay, like I've been saying before, I'm using an historical approach to Scripture, which means deep uh, study of historical context to mentally recreate the world of the text through focusing on things like outside verification, which was week one. There's a little bit of outside verification today, too. Number of sources. If it's in all four Gospels, historians consider it more reliable, more evidenced. Lack of fit with tradition or overall message. If Jesus, Jesus is quoted as saying something that doesn't seem to fit with the other things, they think, well, that's probably, uh, in some ways, historically more relevant. And then the earliest document, documents. So again, we're going to be focusing mostly on the Gospel of Mark because it was first. Okay, so the two previous Sundays, you can't really read those things, but it doesn't matter because we did them already. But I was talking about Jesus of Nazareth as a historical person and the fact that he called himself the Son of Man rather than Messiah or the King. And today we're going to look at the role and function of the miracles and how his words related to the powers of the day. Now, the last one sounds like it's going to be kind of a downer, but it's actually where it all kind of comes together. What did the early church do with this message, and who put it all together? And I think it was James, and the letter of James, that reflected Jesus of Nazareth as, darn it, I can't say that, um, his approach, what he said. And of course, historians always say, the closer to the source, the better. All right, the series, what can we learn about the historical Jesus from the period? and his use of rhetoric, and how can we enhance our understanding of Jesus in the early church through that. All right, so as we know, Jesus begins his ministry where? Well, yeah, Galilee. <laughs> and he, as we've looked at before, he's definitely a Galilean. He has a Galilean perspective. He has a Galilean accent, and most of his ministry happens in Galilee. Gospel of Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. doesn't have the birth narratives. It just starts. I've just, you know, it's been interesting to just go back and read it. It's like, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bam. And it's, it goes. And that time Jesus came from Nazareth's Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then uh, he hears the voice. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And spirit sent him out to the wilderness to be tempted. Okay, so this is in chapter one in Mark. We're moving fast here. He's already been baptized. He already goes to the wilderness. John is imprisoned by like the fourth <laughs> uh, verse and then Herod, by Herod Agrippa and Jesus begins his ministry. Okay, not the fourth, the 14th verse. And after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So what was the good news? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Okay, and as we've seen, that phrase kingdom of God is a tricky phrase. It kind of means one thing to the hearers and another thing to Jesus, and we'll get into that. They think that it means Rome's going to get their punishment. And he chooses four of his disciples, all fishermen. At this point, he, he, uh, at the point we're looking at, he hasn't even picked all 12, just four. Okay, he immediately goes to the synagogue at Capernaum, 121. I use the word immediately intentionally because Mark uses that word more than any other gospel writer. Immediately, immediately, right after that. Or he, then he did this. Mark, they went to Capernaum. 
So he and the four disciples. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Remember, teachers of the law had to speak in precedent. They couldn't speak from personal authority. And I think that's going to be a huge issue. He's going to say some things like the Sabbath is meant for man, not man for the Sabbath. Right? That's authoritative. He's saying, you don't understand what Sabbath is. This is what it means. Tricky stuff. (laughs) Right. Some of the aspects of the secret are right there in front of you. Okay. So he goes to Capernaum, and he taught them as one who had authority. What exactly that means, we'll look at today. Okay, Mark, it's interesting. 23rd verse. (laughs) He says... Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, and he spoke to Jesus, and as we looked before, he calls him Jesus of Nazareth, to make sure it's not confused who he is. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what does Jesus tell him? Shh, it's a secret. (laughs) Be quiet. You're spilling the beans. Now, he's just beginning his ministry. This is his first visit to the synagogue after he's begun his ministry. He's got four of his disciples. And this guy's already shooting off his mouth. So he says, come on out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all amazed, and they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with what? All right, see, key word for today, authority. Okay, Jesus moves his base of operations after a brief encounter. It, not really in Mark, but we learn from uh, uh, the Gospels that he goes back to Nazareth, and, he, and as we would say, or as Ronnie Dangerfield would say, he didn't get any respect. Like, I, I don't get no respect. <laughs> and uh, things go really badly for him. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's typical. You're not appreciated in your own home or your own hometown sometimes uh, for the things you do. Because they know who you are. They saw you grow up. They're not impressed. Okay, so he moves his base of operations to Capernaum. And then spends most of his ministry wandering around these areas. And you can see various events. You, you can see this on your printout or, or if you look it up online. You can see more of the details. Of the, some things that happened around the Sea of Galilee. But a lot of the famous stories happened there. Also, you can see the, the little red path there that Jesus spent a lot of time just kind of wandering this area and going to different villages and towns along the way. He does end up going over into Decapolis. We'll learn today over across the Sea of Galilee. You see it down there, Decapolis? It was a, those were ten basically Greek cities, but Jewish people lived in these different places. All right, so... As soon as they left the synagogue, Mark keeps it moving, doesn't he? As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, the four disciples he's picked. Simon's um, mother-in-law, Simon, who will be Peter later, was in bed with a fever and immediately uh, told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That's usually not the first impulse someone has when they... (laughs) That evening after... But I think there's a hint there about the secret. Right? If you're given a gift from God, what are you supposed to do? Serve. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. And one of the things that's controversial about this, this whole section of the talk is it's very difficult in a modern age to talk about Jesus doing these things. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. It's a secret. Darn demons kept spilling the beans. Was that a devil? I don't know if I want to go into a whole thing about that, but maybe we should have a whole lecture series on devils and demons. It's a. Yeah. Who's our law court people? There's some lawyers in here. You, what do you call that? You rescind the court. You, uh, when you withdraw the question, yeah, you, that's it. I think that's the, yeah, recused, yeah. Too complicated to answer. But yes, demons were evil. They they were uh, manipulative. They could invade people. But I don't think it's as complicated as is you know this kind of silly picture we have in our head of like 
the devil standing there and all the demons in his army. And You know what I'm saying? I don't think it's quite that simple. Okay. So the scriptures use three terms for acts of divine intervention. He uses sign, and actually Mark doesn't use a lot, sign very often, but sometimes you see, you know, the signs and miracles, signs and wonders. Um, the Greek word is simeon, and actually by the time we get to John, he just calls Jesus' miracles simeon. He just puts it right there. Um, signs were intended to, tended to demonstrate to the observer something more than the sign itself. So what happened wasn't as important as what it means. Okay. Also, they would say signs and wonders. These are terrors, something strange causing the beholder to marvel. The wonder itself is the center of attention. So you show wonders just to make people, you know, wonder. So magic tricks most of the time would be in the category of wonders. You can take everything as all three. Because if someone does an oppressive magic trick, it also is a sign that they're a good magi magician if it works. So it is pointing to something. But most of the time, they're just trying to make you go like, how'd he do that? Okay, and so all, there's always a big question as to um, signs and wonders. And, and it's interesting that people ask for signs and wonders. And then miracles, dunamis, it's a, where we get the word dynamite from the Greek. It means acts of power. So power, inherent ability used in works of supernatural origin and characters such as could not be produced by natural agents and means. We still have a similar definition. But in miracles, it's supposed to be about the power behind the act itself. And that's interesting, because usually we use miracles more like wonders, but never, not so much to think about, well, what was the power that did this? In that sense, what are they? Simeon, they're signs. See, it's circular. It's not like you can say any one act is one of those three. I think you could say most acts are partially those different things. All right. At the time of Jesus, there were plenty of professional wonder workers. This is very little known, even though, again, it's right there in front of you. They mentioned some of them right there in the scriptures. But there's other ones that were recorded by other people. Now, this is from uh, Reza Aslan again a book that I've been using throughout the, the talk. Jesus was surely not the first exorcist to walk the shores of Galilee. First century Palestine professional wonder worker was a vocation well established as that of woodworker or mason. What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I want to be a wonder worker. Galilee especially abounded with charismatic fan fantasts. I love it. Then he brings up a word that, I, you know, I have a doctorate in English and I don't fling that one around. Claiming to be, to channel the divine for a nominal fee. So the point was, you did it, you helped people for what? Money. What concerned priests and scribes was the source of Jesus' activities. They weren't concerned that he was doing it, that's what you do, right? If you're going to have any kind of claim to anything, Messiah, King, or something, you better be able to do a few miracles, signs, wonders, something. So it was standard procedure in a lot of ways, for him to do what he did, what they were worried about is how he did it. Did he do it with the power of demons? Or was he doing it with the power of God? Or was he just a magician? And it's funny, they never really say, accusing him of being a magician. So he think, they think it's either got to be God or somebody bad, but it's never, they don't just think he's tricking them. What was most surprising is they accepted no fee. Okay, so what sets him apart, and a lot of people talk about how were Jesus' miracles and acts different than the people of the day that we know? And that's one way, but I, I agree with Aslan. That's not enough to say that what he was doing was, was different. All right. Another thing that Aslan says, uh, Aslan Reza says, is there is more accumulated historical material confirming Jesus' miracles than there is regarding either his birth or his death. Okay. Now, that does not mean historical in the sense that it's verified from the outside, but what he means is one-third of the Gospel of Mark is about his miracles, right? It's a key part of all of the Gospels. Um, so it's something that people never doubted, even in his own time, that he did these things. Nobody ever said, you didn't do it. They just said, I want to know how you did it. Okay, so let's not get confused. None can be historically validated in the sense that, you know, we have a, historic, a historian standing there recording it saying, yes, this in indeed happened, and, you know, people signing off on the witness papers. 
We don't get lucky enough to have that. But, as he says, there was never any debate either among his followers or his detractors about his role as an exorcist and miracle worker. And his, he adds, at no point in the Gospels to Jesus' enemies did, okay, I think that's supposed to be, did Jesus' enemies ever deny his miracles, though they do question their motive and source. Why are you doing them? And what power are you using to do them? Yes? Yeah, we do. <laughs> we have lots of magicians running around right now. And uh, we have uh, fortune tellers on every corner and every street. We have, they're all still here. There are people still doing these things. They usually don't try to make careers out of it. I don't know. There's, uh, there's a couple of magicians. I still have no idea how they do what they do. Yeah, they make, uh, I've seen a guy, you know, like pass his finger through solid objects. and <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so I don't think there's anything unusual about his time period in that sense. I think there, there are always people that's gonna, that are going to try to fool people. We could talk about politicians right now, but that's a different matter. <laughs> was not the only miracle worker of his day, okay? So let's look at some people. There was one called Honey the Circle Drawer. And interestingly enough, these people are historically verified. They, these are written about by historians, whereas Jesus is not. There's a little irony there. Honey the Circle Drawer. I like that name. Uh, that's a good circus name, isn't it? He drew a circle on the ground during a drought and said, I swear by your great name, pointing, you know, of course, to God, he was a Jew, that I will not move from here until you have mercy on your sons. And guess what? It rained. And he did some other things. I, gave, I put some links on here where you can actually go back and read about all these people. His, uh, one of his two grandsons became uh, almost equally famous, Abba Hilkiah, spelled a little differently in, in Hebrew, and Hanan the Hidden. How about that? Call yourself a secret right in your name. I'm Hanan the Hidden. <laughs> All right. They were widely credited with miraculous deeds similar to what Jesus did, and they both lived in Galilee around the time of Jesus. Jesus even talks about someone. Uh, we'll see that in a minute, doing these kinds of things. So if you want to know more about Honi or Abba, there you go. There was... Rabbi Hanina Bendoza, so even a rabbi is in on the, on the trade. He resided in the village of Arab, just a few kilometers from Jesus' home in Nazareth. He had the power to pray over the sick and even intercede on their behalf to discern who would live and who would die. So he didn't so much heal people, but he could tell <laughs> if you were headed in or out. Okay, there's this guy. This is huge. This guy had a, had a quote, ministry. Very, very similar to Jesus. He had disciples. He, he went to similar places. He did similar things. And um, he lived 3 B.C. to 97 A.D. So he lived longer than Jesus. Uh, a holy man who taught the concept of supreme God and performed mir miraculous deeds wherever he went. Now, I found this in uh, Reza Aslan's book, but you, like, you can just go to Wikipedia and learn all tons of things about this guy. According to his biography, he healed the lame, the blind, and the paralytic. He even raised a girl from the dead. He was killed by the Romans. Most all of them were killed by the Romans. <laughs> Reportedly appeared to one of his detractors after his death. Okay, there are people who go into all kinds of bizarre uh, conjectural theories about Apollonius being Jesus or Jesus being Apollonius, and I don't really want to go down any of those roads, but it's obvious that there were other people doing similar things at the time. And what I want to think about is how is Jesus, how is his secret, how is his ministry different from these other people? And actually, it makes a whole lot of things make more sense, right? When he's wandering around doing these great deeds, one thing you start wondering is, why don't they grab him earlier? And part of it is, there are a lot of people running around doing all this stuff. So at first, they just send representatives. Remember? Just be like some scribes, some Pharisees, some, some priests. They're coming like, let's check this guy out. And so they're never worried about whether he does these things. It makes more sense now. It's how are you doing them? Same question they would ask of anybody doing these kinds of things. And like I just said about magicians, the first thing you think is, how'd they do that? 
Many exorcists are mentioned in the Gospels. You can see that they're mentioned uh, in the Gospels themselves. Uh, one of them, Eleazar, used amulets and incantations to draw demons out of the afflicted through their noses. You've all heard that thing that when you sneeze, that's why we say God bless you, because we think the demons left out of your nose. <laughs> say God bless you, or like the demons might be able to get in through your nose. All right, so Rab, Rabbi, Rabbi, or Rabbi, uh, ben Yoha, Yohai, would cast out demons by uttering the demon's name, like Jesus Yohai would first command the demon to identify itself and gave him authority over it. So what Jesus is doing is not that different than what other people do. And then as you know, Paul is credited later for doing uh, exorcisms in Jesus' name. And they even found exorcism instructions in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right. As we know from previous weeks, there were two failed messiahs, Thutis and the Egyptian, and they used miraculous deeds to gain followers and make messianic claims. They were called men of deeds. It's the same term they used for Jesus. Okay, and even the literary form of the miracle is reflected in the Gospels. The telling of miracles in secular and Jewish contexts is almost exactly repeated in the formulas of the Gospels. By this time, you're thinking, what sets Jesus apart? That's where we're going. Okay, let's talk about magic. So one of the things that you didn't want, you could do things in the name of God. You didn't want to be doing things in the name of, of demons or the devil, but the middle between those two would be doing things magically, right? Nobody's quite sure where magic comes from. <laughs> like, is it a dark art? Is it a, a, a white magic? Where does it come from? So, um, kind of in between is magic, and it's interesting because though magicians were ubiquitous in the Greco-Roman world, magic was considered a form of charlatry. So, most of them were considered charlatans. But just like now, we may say someone's a charlatan, and then life goes wrong, and there you're talking to a gypsy, right? <laughs> Lots of people do those things. <laughs> When I was going through a divorce, somebody said, I want you to, it, there was a gypsy in this uh, restaurant where we were. She was off in this room, and you could pay her 25 bucks, and she supposedly tell you. And uh, I was just so distressed that my friend said, I'm paying for you to talk to <laughs> the gypsy. I was like, what the heck? My life's such a wreck, I'll listen to what she says. <laughs> so we may say these things. Or we may say, I don't believe in horoscopes, but then one day you read one, it's like creepily accurate, and you're like, oh my gosh. So it is a, it is a question, and, and their society like ours would say magicians are charlatans, but at the same time, go to see the show. Yeah. It can be magic or wisdom. Yes, it's a secret wisdom. <laughs> and the question is always, where does it come from? Is it just tomfoolery? Am I just, uh, you know, fooling people? And we tend to find that more acceptable, actually, than if I'm uh, drawing on some sort of mysterious power. But the Romans had several laws against the practice. Crazy enough, the Romans accepted all kinds of religions and religious practices, but they didn't like dark magic. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're doing in there. And, of course, that makes a lot of things make sense later, because they thought Christians were doing dark magic. They thought, you know, they were troublemakers meeting down underground and probably eating people and stuff. They, they just really didn't understand what's going on. All right, the law of Moses makes it punishable by death. I always thought that was interesting. Um, but as, as Ray Sazan says, uh, magicians were fairly prevalent. So I think there's always a big difference between policy, right, law, and then what's happening out here. There always has been. I guess there probably always will be. Okay, so the definition depends on who does the defining. So Moses does things out of the power of God, and then the Egyptians do the same things, and they're like, these are magic, <laughs> these are not. Okay, so it kind of depends on where you are and what your claims you're making about the power. But to be clear, Deuteronomy says, now remember Deuteronomy is a later book, but it's well established by the time of Jesus. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, a scary verse simply because that means that it was going on, so it has to stop. 
who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or consults the dead. Half of those things were part of the religious practices of other cultures. Almost all of them. Casting spells, divination, interpreting omens, key parts of Roman religion. So again, what's magic? What's miracle? All right, so then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre. We've only moved up to chapter 7 here. And he went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Yes, so he's finally going around the Sea of Galilee down into Decapolis. There are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. As Lesson points out, another thing that doesn't distinguish Jesus' teaching. Some people say, well, he didn't do incantations and that sort of thing, but they weren't reading because Mark tells us that he does. All right, Jesus used the magician techniques, incantations, rehearsed formulas, spitting, repeated supplications, and he does right here. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Really weird and uncomfortable right there. Isn't it? A man who could hardly talk, and he puts his fingers in his ears. <laughs> then he spit, and he touched the man's tongue. These are things that other people doing these kinds of works would do. It's interesting, it's in Mark's account, but the Matthew and Luke sort of downplay some of these things. It's almost like they're saying, he's not a magician, I don't want to confuse people. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephatha, Ephatha, which means be opened. So he uses, I don't want to say magical words, but he uses uh, formulated words. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Okay, so... It's not unusual that he was doing what he was doing. It is unusual that he was doing it for free. But you also can't say that he didn't use some of the similar techniques as some of the others who were doing it. So I'm hoping I've created enough tension in the room. Well, what the heck was he doing? Okay, let's look at this one. Now, I don't want to go through this whole story, but there's a woman who uh, has an issue of blood, right? So different ways you could interpret that, but not a good thing when this happens to women. Any woman will tell you. So um, it's not exactly clear exactly what's happening there, but um, I think you can figure it out. And she comes, and uh, when she touches his robe, she says, if I touch him, then it'll stop. So in a way, she's believing in a magical power. Uh, But, of course, it worked. But Jesus turns around, and this is a really odd scene, because he turns around, and he's like, somebody touched me. And the disciples are like, (laughs) there's a hundred people all around us. Uh, They're all trying to touch you, and many have. What are you talking about? And he says, but I felt power go out of me. So we get one little window how Jesus sees his power, where it's coming from. It's not coming from him, is it? It's like it's flowing through him, and he felt it go out. So he turns around and he finds her and he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, freed from your suffering. Mark's narrative suggests that Jesus was a conduit through which healing power pulsed like an electrical current. A little vivid, but I think that makes sense. uh, If we're asking that question, how is he doing what he's doing, something's coming through him and he feels it. Okay, and like I said before, he didn't charge for help, but not only did he not charge for help, when he sends out the disciples, he tells them, don't you dare either. Don't charge anybody for doing these things. Okay, so he says, Jesus called his 12 disciples and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So now they have the authority he has, right? Jesus sent out with the following instructions, do not go among the Gentiles or enter the town of the Samaritans. Interesting, the earliest gospel says, don't go there. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel as you go. Proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of God that he's talking about. Then heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. What's he say? Freely you have received. Freely give. That's interesting. Right after that, he says what you can take. Don't take gold or silver or copper. Because you don't have to pay for anything, right? I don't want you paying for anything either. Don't take any money and don't pay any money. 
Don't put anything in your belts. No bag. No clothes. Where are you going to get all those things? You're going to have to eat. He says, find somebody and go live with them. Now, that sounds odd now, but that's custom all over the ancient world. And when you enter into a town, the Greeks called it uh, Xenia or Xenia. It was this belief that any stranger is uh, to be taken in and taken care of. That's just what you do. It's interesting that in, this, in, this, in the refugee crisis, who, who has been taking more than anyone? The Greeks. Because they just have that built in. I have a friend from Greece, and she was talking about the economy being so horrible and, and so many people out of work. And we said, how do you stay sane? How, how are you not like at each other's throats? And she said, we take care of each other. She said, if anybody has something, everybody has something. I'm like, huh, humbling thought. I don't see a lot of Zania happening over here on this side of the pond. Jesus sets the pattern for the disciples, right? This is the way I've lived. Did you see me take money for any miracle? Don't you. Did you see me pick up a bag? Don't you. Did you see what I did when I went to a town? Found a trustworthy person. We went and lived with them. You find someone to feed and house you and take no money for helping people. Peter continues this practice in Acts and even rebukes Simon the what? Simon Magnus, we call him. Simon the magician, who says, I want to be able to do this too. <laughs> and he gives, says, here's some money. And what does Peter says? Rot with your money. <laughs> That's my translation. May you rot, just like your money, for trying to buy the Holy Spirit. So, I think you can probably already answer this question. <laughs> what makes his miracles different? I like what Ashland says about this. Magic and miracle are perhaps best thought of as two sides of the same coin in ancient Palestine. However, there is clearly something unique and distinctive about Jesus' miraculous actions in the Gospels. It is not simply that Jesus' work is free of charge, although that's unique, or that his healings do not always employ a magician's methods because some of them seem to. This is what he said. It is that Jesus' miracles are not intended as an end in themselves not about him, right? And it's not just about somebody being better. Rather, his actions serve a pedagogical purpose. This is one of those words that I sometimes ask my students if they know, and they're like, uh. But pedagogy is, is from paideia, from the Greek uh, word for child. So pedagogy is the teaching of children. Um, being a good example, uh, Broadly speaking, that's what it means. Now we, we say it's teaching the pr- teaching practices. But I, I think it's interesting to think that it's, it's related to paideia. And the Greeks also had, I think, a really cool idea about paideia. And they said that, that stories should always be paideia. They should always be ways to teach children to live in the world and to think. So every story you tell has to be a paideia. You can't tell a story just to say mean things. (laughs) I'm reminded a bit about a friend of mine. She said she was in Germany and she noticed that they wouldn't cross the street unless the light changed. And she thought, well, those darn Germans, you know, they're just so follow the rules kind of people. And she was making all these assumptions and judgments about it. But I'm one of those people, like, if I'm starting to make assumptions and judgments, I better start asking some questions because I probably don't know anything. And she did the same thing. She just asked a person that was standing there, why, why do you wait for the light? And she said, well, if we went through, it would be a bad example for the children. Those darn Germans. I mean, that was so powerful, and she felt so humbled. She said, you know, over in the States, boy, we just, as soon as the traffic's gone, we don't think about the kids might see me do that and get killed. I noticed that when I was in Paris, too, they, they have uh, all their parks are fenced in, and they have closing gates on them. And if any child goes out one of those gates, any Parisian will say something, not just the parent. I saw a kid go out the gate, and this woman just goes up. She takes the child, <laughs> brings him back in. You need to stay close to your mama. 
See? So I think here we see this, this Greek and ancient concept that you take care of people. You, take, you watch out what you do in terms of children. And when you travel, people can help you. They, they will house you and feed you if you're doing the right things. Okay, so the miracles are a sign. Yes, they're a simeon. And they're showing the way into the kingdom of God. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus makes this very clear. He uses something um, that in India they call tarka. Um, we, don't, we just call it if-then reasoning, right? If-then. We do this all the time when we don't know, right? Well, if it's the case that, then I should see this, right? It's how we theorize the world. But it's also a good teaching method. If I am doing this, then. Isn't it? I've used this logic sometimes like, well, if I meant to do this, then why did I do that? And uh, it works, right? If I meant to mislead you in such a way that you've taken it, then why did I do this? And they're like, ah, then I guess you didn't mean to do that, did you? We get caught in these things where people misinterpret things. And then if you can just say, well, if that was so, why this? It's a great way to say it. So he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons... Not saying it is, not saying it's not, because, you know, it's a secret. You've got to figure this out. If it is, then what? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's right in front of your face. Okay, there's another thing that's going on here that's very exciting, too. Anybody ever a secret club when you were a kid? Oh, yeah, those were great. And usually you made manuals and hid under bushes and tree houses and things. We had our own constitution. We actually officially withdrew from the United States. <laughs> we were like, can we secede? And we thought about it and we thought, I don't know of any rule that says you can't. So we seceded from the United States. We created our own, our own country. Okay. There's something going on here like that. And, and I don't think I noticed that as much until I was doing this series. Because we tend to say, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, we tend to think kingdom of God, big God out there, abstract, right? Or even kingdom of heaven, the way it's translated in Matthew. Not what he's talking about. He's saying there is another reality right here in front of you happening. It's an alternate reality. It's not like your reality, but it's happening and you're looking at it. Today we would say, maybe he would say something Instead of kingdom of God, he might say something like alternate reality. <laughs> All right. It, because it is. It's not alternate in the sense because it's more real than this reality. It's not alternate in, in that sense. But he's saying something's going on here, and you're looking straight at it. Right? It's the finger of God. This is hitting me more powerfully because it's really made me think of all the contemporary world, and how I am judging the things that I see happening in the world. And it's making me think, am I looking through this reality or am I looking through the alternate reality? And I don't think it necessarily adds up the way even people who think they're living in an alternate see. So I think if we think about it in any way, the implications of this teaching series is to really think about, well, what does this kingdom of God look like? Okay. So, remember John is in prison and he asks Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus says, go back, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So he's directly appealing to Isaiah, but John would know the beginning of that verse. Yep, what's it say? Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, and he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now, even the word vengeance there, I don't think, means what they thought it was going to mean. Like wiping out the Romans. I think it meant he's going to clean house. 
friend of mine told me a joke one time about something like uh, the Pope gets a, gets a phone call and it's a good news, bad news joke. She's like, Papa, Papa, there's a, there's a Jesus, Jesus is on the phone. That's a good news. And he's like, but it's a good news and bad news. And he's like, uh, okay, well, Jesus is on the phone. That is pretty good news. What's the bad news? He's in a Salt Lake City. <laughs> Never forgot that joke. <laughs> there's a second version. He's a really ticked off. So... Either one you go with, it's a surprise. And I think what's happening here, I'm sorry, that's, I wrote that in orange and you can't actually read it, but it says, your God will come, he will come with vengeance. So basically Jesus is saying, I'm doing this for a reason because I'm trying to establish a different kingdom, right? I'm coming to clean house. Second time, he continues. Now, I like what uh, Aslan says about this. Except God had already had representatives on earth. Jesus is claimed to be, you know, representing this new kingdom. But they were the ones clothed in the fine robes, milling about the temple, hovering over the mountains of incense and their ceaseless sacrifices, the sick, the, the leper, the demon-possessed, menstruating women, those with bodily discharges, those who had recently given birth. None of these were permitted to enter the temple or take part in rituals unless first purified according to the priestly code. You all know that, you know, they would say, what are you doing? You're hanging around with these people. You're touching these people. With every leper cleansed, every paralytic healed, every demon cast out, Jesus was not only challenging the priestly code, he was invalidating the very purpose of the priesthood. All right? So when he, he cleanses the man of leprosy, he says, see that you don't tell this to anyone. And of course the guy does, but that's a different matter. He's, he handles secrets like my mother. But go, show yourself to the priest. Not to mention, if you were leprous and now you're not, you have some explaining to do. So go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Testimony means what? Sign. But what's the sign? We'll think about that. What does the sign mean? Here's what you're supposed to do to be cleansed. <laughs> According to Leviticus, bring two clean birds, some cedar wood, crimson yarn, and hyssop. One of the birds has to be sacrificed immediately, and the living bird, cedar wood, yarn, hyssop dipped in its blood. The blood must be sprinkled upon the leper, and the living bird released. Seven days later, the leper must shave off his or her hair, bathe herself in water. On the eighth day, the leper must take two male lambs, free of blemish, one ewe lamb, also without blemish. And so with a grain offering and choice flour mixed with oil, back to the priest who will make of them a burnt offering to the Lord. The priest must smear the blood of the offering on the leper's right earlobe, right thumb, and on one big toe his right foot. Now who's doing magic here? I don't know, but I don't want to get into that. He must then sprinkle the leper with oil seven times. After that's complete, so Jesus isn't telling him that. He's saying basically, I cleansed you. Just go back and tell him. Right? You don't have to do all that stuff. This is a different kingdom, isn't it? Jesus is telling, isn't telling the leper to perform the ceremony. He's saying, tell him to come to the priest, and he's already cleansed. He didn't have to go through that. So the writing's on the wall. Yeah. I know, it's interesting. He says, don't tell anybody, but go to the priest. In Mark, though, things only happen like once or twice. <laughs> so you have to make a whole lot out of them. I think it's an interesting move, though. He goes from don't tell anybody that's it to this is a sign. And that's where I think Reza Aslan has a point that Jesus has shifted from the beginning saying, I don't want this to get out to go tell them because it's a sign and I want to see if you can read it. It speaks for itself. The healing of the leper is a direct challenge, not only to the priest's authority, but to the temple itself. You don't have to do all that stuff. Jesus did not only heal the leper, he purified him, making him eligible to appear at the temple as a true Israelite. And he did so, how, what, for what? For free, as a gift of God, without tithe, without sacrifice, thus seizing for himself the powers granted solely to the priesthood to deem a man worth entering the presence of God. You also look at this story of the man that was lowered through the ceiling, this is early in Jesus' ministry in Mark 2. 
You remember this story? They lower him through the ceiling, and he says, get up, your sins are forgiven. And they ask, you're blaspheming. You can't forgive sins. And what does he say? I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so then he heals the guy. Get it? It's a sign. (laughs) It's not just that he's healed. It's not just that I have compassion on him. It is a sign to you that things have changed. There's a new order. All right. Did the priest figure this out? Mark 11. They arrived in Jerusalem. Jesus is walking in the temple courts. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. So this is close to the end of his ministry on earth. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? Key question, isn't it? We, we, we acknowledge that you're doing it. But what's your authority? I love he uses another wonderful rhetoric. I'll answer your question if you answer me one. <laughs> it's kind of grade school, but it's really a cool method, isn't it? Tell me this. So he says, well, was John, was his ministry from God or not? And they get confused. Well, if we say it was from God, he'd say, well, why don't you believe him? If you say it's of the devil, then everybody's going to hate us. So what are we going to do? We don't know. <laughs> and he goes, neither will I tell you what authority I'm doing these things. The sign's there. Right? I've done the signs. They clearly point somewhere. But I think it's interesting they clearly point to a space that they fully understand undermines them. Right? It leaves them with two choices. If he's from God, they're in trouble. And if he's not from God, the people know better. They're caught in the middle. It's a brilliant rhetorical trick. The miracles actually form, and this is where everything came together. It's the third strand of the hidden message. First strand, calling himself the son of man. He's not the king or messiah, he's the son of man. He keeps saying that. And I can't help but think that the son of man is so much more powerful because it reminds us that king and messiah might be true, but first it's what? Son of man, human, a person like you. I suffer like you, I suffer for you. That's first. kingdom of God in the parables. And the third sign is what? He's doing all these signs. I'm calling myself the son of man. Figure it out. Why am I calling myself that? I'm talking about in parables, the kingdom of God. Figure out the parables. Third thing, I'm doing these things. Think about it. I'm not doing them just to do them. I'm not doing them just because I'm nice or because I have the heart of a physician. I'm doing it because they're a sign. So read the signs. All right, so the miracles are semen of dynamis. There are signs of power. It's interesting, I, th- I thought, well, I know this guy, uh, Reza Aslan says this, but do other people agree? And I found this interesting thing about F- Father Ronald Winterup. For Mark, the meaning is clear. Jesus' ability to exercise demons is a main element of his teaching. It's not a question of magic or promoting wonderment. It's some unexplainable trick, the terms we're thinking about. In Mark's day, the Greco-Roman world was filled with charlatans and magicians. Even Jesus and Mark acknowledges other miracle workers, and he's not incensed that someone else would be in competition with him. You remember this story? Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he's not one of us. Jesus says what? Don't stop him. Anyone who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say any, can't say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Really an amazingly generous attitude. In fact, some gospel miracles about Jesus have counterparts in contemporary figures like Apollonia, Septiana, Honey the Circle Drawer, who could do wondrous deeds. But the similarities stop there. Jesus' ability to perform miracles to show God's power and Jesus' authority to heal. So what are we talking about here? Soon the authorities in Jerusalem no longer will be able to ignore this itinerant exorcist and miracle worker. He was like one of many to them for a while. Now he's starting to stand out because they're starting to read what? And the signs 
are going to say something very clear, and I have a fun way to put it in a second. For it is not just Jesus' miraculous actions they fear. It's not the miracles. People do those things all the time. They're not afraid of that. It's a simple yet incredibly dangerous message conveyed through them. What? Yes, and they know the first part of that verse too. The day of the Lord's vengeance. He's going to clean house. And maybe they don't want their house cleaned. A lot of us don't. Magic, miracles, and exorcism. Let's kind of pull it all together, and I'll go to my boffo ending. Magic, miracles, and exorcisms were common in the days of Jesus and lucrative form of business. Claimants to being king or Messiah also commonly reported as performing miracles and exorcisms. And we can't get into whether your people are actually doing these things or not. That's a different matter. But it's, it's common to hear the talk of these things happening. Both Jews and Romans had laws against magic, but the lines between magic and miracles were blurred. And Jesus' miracles were similar to those of others and exhibited forms of incantational magic, as some do. But as we know, they were unique and they were free. So the fundamental issue the priest got, they got that sign. What's the fundamental issue? Not that you're doing them. Why? How? By what authority do you do these things? Jesus' miracles point to his authority as the Son of Man who acts as God's representative on earth. He's using the finger of God. In many ways, the priests and the scribes got the message. What's the message? Dead end ahead. Your services will no longer be required. <laughs> this, this study really made those things hit me. What they were really afraid of. They're afraid of losing their power. Huh. It was. You got nice robes and ties. All right. He tells a parable right to their faces in Mark, right before he is uh, captured and crucified. He tells the parable of the tenants, right? So the landlord puts the tenants in charge and he leaves and he keeps sending messengers and they kill him and he says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they respect him. And they're like, well, we'll own the land if we kill the son. And they kill the son. And so what, is the, what does he say? He says, well, what do you think the owner's going to do when he returns? There you go. He's going, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stones the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. The chief priests and the teachers of the law read the sign. <laughs> they knew he had spoken this parable against them. All right, so let's look at what Jesus is doing, I think. He's using these three different elements. All kept at a mysterious distance, but yet if you begin to piece them all together, you get it, Right? The parables of the kingdom of God, the miracles, calling himself the Son of Man, is explaining indirectly and in a very rich and interesting way that he's talking about an alternate reality. The miracles and exorcism function as a third strand of the mystery. Jesus did miracles as signs of power pointing the kingdom of God. The parables act as signs pointing to an alternate way of seeing the world. So I'll close out. Jesus of Nazareth uses miracles and stories as signs pointing to a totally different way of living in the world called the kingdom of God. If you, I think I'm going to encourage people just to say, call it alternate reality, call it something else, but we've overlaid it with so many words that we're not getting the fact that the kingdom of God is an alternate way of interpreting everything. One where the poor and the outcast are valued and the rich and powerful have to leave them behind to get in. We forget he said that, didn't he? It is a kingdom ruled by a person who refuses the title of king or messiah and calls himself the son of man. No wonder Jesus, when asked if he were king or messiah at the trial, could only say, that's who you say I am. He knew that they had no shared reality. What they meant by king and what they meant by messiah was completely off, and they didn't understand the kingdom of all because they were living in a different kingdom, living in a different reality. We're calling it reality bubbles now. <laughs> I hear them flinging this phrase around, and I'm like, yeah. Now, which bubble are you in? And this son of man shows how we live in that kingdom, accepting the food and shelter of others, but never speak, asking for money 
for help and freely given what we've been given. In this world, rules and laws are to free us, rituals and regulations replaced with faith and mercy. So, of course, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And as a, as a brief addendum, I couldn't help but thinking this morning, as I really thought about this, how radical this kingdom of God thing is. This whole way, this, this way of adding up the world. And in particular, I think I'd forgotten that it's about the first part of what I said. It's about the poor and the oppressed. And that the rich don't have a chance to even get in. Because they, they can't see that other reality. Now that doesn't, I, you know, I don't want to get on the road and say we all have to give up our money. But I, I do think that it makes me look at the whole world political scene again and make me ask myself which reality am I looking through here and I don't know uh, what exactly that means whether it means that I'll you know what I'm saying I'm still thinking about that but I am thinking about that like what does it mean to live in a world where we value the poor and the oppressed there you go let's end with that yeah Okay, so I'm back in time in Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, and you got one, uh, you got a bunch of magic going on. The miracles don't sound any different than what Christ is doing, other than the fact that Christ is doing it. Now you have to know that first. And of course, they didn't know who, he was Jesus of Nazareth, they, you know. But how, uh, how would you know that it was different if you didn't know who Jesus was? I don't know, two responses to that. One is, I don't know if it was the kind of hokey thing where everybody just would get it. We do, in the movies, there's always this, you know, they just see Jesus and they're like, oh my gosh. And I do think some people reacted to him that way, but obviously everybody didn't get it. I think it is what he says. Look at the signs. Look at what I'm doing. Look at the fruit of everything that I've done. And if you add up all the signs, you'll see what I'm doing. I like it because he's really trusting us with what he's doing. He's not telling us. Because who's going to listen to that anyway? There were all kinds of people claiming to be king and messiah. Right? Who's going to listen to that? I would, you know. So in other words, yes, you had to Fruit. the whole picture. All of his miracles. I'd say the way you got it is to just go, wait a second, everything is lining up. Yep, he's telling stories. He's titling himself different. He's not charging money. This guy's different. When he leaves it open-ended, people don't form an opinion. Right. He's not going, I am the Messiah, and here. Yeah. And they keep thinking, well, what about that other guy? He didn't. What about that one? He did it. He did What about that other guy? I keep thinking about, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar when that came out. The the last song as it is basically, who are you? You know, Jesus Christ, who are you? What have you sacrificed? And the first time I heard that, I said, that's a really weird way to end this. <laughs> and, but I'm like, no, it's interesting. He created this mystery in his own time, and it's still a mystery. You still have to look at those three strands and add them up, or you don't see it. Yeah. They show up. <laughs> And there's something we all know. Uh, the times of my suffering is when I see the most clearly. Right? And I remember a friend of mine, she lived in this really poor neighborhood, and I was always afraid she was going to beat up. And she goes, you know, uh, she said, in my neighborhood, we look out for each other because we're all poor. We all have nothing. Nobody's going to steal from us. <laughs> we have nothing. And I, I think there are exceptions, but she had a point. We suffer, and because of our common suffering, we see the world differently. And she used to tell me, sometimes I'd make judgments about you know, poor people and, and, and thinking that they were ignorant or you know, things like that, that a lot of people think. And she would always say, I think there's a wisdom that comes with that. And then as I became gradually more and more poor in graduate school, I know still I'm part of the privileged class, but on the other hand, I'm making like $12,000 a year. <laughs> so... Ew, that was poor. And it does. It changes your perspective. And I don't think you can see that alternate reality so clearly if everything's going your way or, you know, just it's all paid for.
yeah, yeah. yeah. I definitely agree with you. I think no matter how poor or rich you can bridge that, bridge that gap. And I don't think that the kingdom of God is someplace that only Christians can live. I think that, that our society as a whole can, can at least um, share some of the values. Yeah, and of course, this is what Jesus is doing. I set the example. You've watched me have my ministry, and when he sent them out, he sent them out, you know how to do this, because I've done it. And so that's what discipleship is, is to set the example. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this was a, this was Thank you. Thank you.